Hello, my name is Ceci Chef from the Enwida team, and you are listening to the Enwida podcast. We have a calling system which gathers anonymous insights from workers on their working lives. And on this short podcast, we hope to bring you the most relevant insights and leading lights when it comes to ethical supply chains. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome back to another segment of our Ethical Trade Conversations. And today, I'm so honored to be chatting with Colleen Tehran, founder of Ardea International. So uh, Colleen has a wealth of legal experience, and we as Enwida are delighted to have partnered with Ardea on a construction sector pilot that aims to measure and drive impact in the lives of workers. So it's such an honor to have you on the line today, Colleen. Um, maybe we can start with you telling us a bit about yourself, specifically your working history and your passion for addressing forced labor. Hi, Ceci, and it's just lovely to be with you um, this afternoon across the divides, but um, here we are together, really looking forward to this conversation. So, uh, yeah, very briefly, um, so I'm Colleen, and I am the founder of Audi International, and we're a specialist sustainability and business and human rights consultancy with expertise in modern slavery. But my career in setting up Ardia started as a lawyer, uh, first in South Africa and then actually in Scotland and then in London. So um, I've, I worked as a lawyer and, and, in, and around environmental issues, but I had a real passion around um, the broader corporate social responsibility uh, agenda. And I was particularly interested in watching how the law was beginning to change and shape behavior for business and how they were going to address the environmental and the human rights impacts. And um, I took a leap 11 years ago and set up my business and um, with the hope of supporting organizations on how they might uh, really look at addressing forced labor as part of being a responsible business. And I guess from a really personal point of view, I have a passion about people reaching their potential. And, you know, people cannot do that when they are exceptionally vulnerable or very exploited. And so, you know, from a, from a very personal point of view, um, working and supporting in this area is, is, is a real passion of mine. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing. And we can absolutely see that passion in all the work that you've been doing. So I'd actually love to jump off that then, given your extensive background in law, I'd love to hear your perspective about the, you know, the laws of the last five years and how, you know, how they've changed when it comes to what companies are actually required to do on the issue of forced labor in their supply chains. Yeah, and that's, you know, actually, I I hope you've got a long time, Ceci, because we could talk about this for a long time. And actually, I I think I would take it back almost, not just five years. And um, I take it back to uh, even prior to 2011, where it was really becoming clear that some kind of accountability needed to um, be crafted on how businesses were managing their supply chains and forced labor. And and the reason for that was that primarily governments have been um, responsible for protecting human rights. But because of the rise of multinational enterprises and the global complexity of supply chains, many more organizations were actually being responsible for impacting negatively on human rights. But there wasn't accountability for that in the law. And 
this kind of governance gap became more and more obvious. And one of the ways to address it was by the development and the acceptance of the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights in 2011. And that was a voluntary framework. It didn't create legal obligations, but it set a standard of how corporations are expected to behave, how they show their duty to respect human rights and how they actually implement that. So that was seen as a real game changer, but it wasn't a legal obligation. And what has subsequently happened is that there's been the growing requirement that laws are put in place to address how businesses behave and what they report on in relation to taking steps to address modern slavery or forced labor. So we started seeing the growth of domestic legislation, looking particularly at reporting obligations. So the Modern Slavery Act, the California Transparency Supply Chain Act in the States were the sort of initial examples of countries starting to establish legislation requiring businesses to start reporting on what they were doing to mitigate these issues around forced labor and their supply chains. And there's suddenly been a massive proliferation of this. So in the last five years, we've seen more reporting legislation coming to the fore. The Australia Act is a good example of that. But I think what's particularly interesting now is the growth, not only in legislation addressing forced labor, but legislation addressing supply chain issues like conflict minerals and also environmental issues. And the legislation that we are now beginning to see coming into the fore Domestic legislation, again, has been, for example, the French Vigilance Act and the Netherlands Due Diligence Child Labour Law, which is likely to have the last elements of it come into force next year. These pieces of legislation are moving away from pure reporting requirements. They're moving towards business having to really demonstrate that they have due diligence processes in place, the actions they're taking, the effectiveness of those actions. So the shift is 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 quite distinct. And alongside these changes, last year in April, the EU Commissioner of Justice announced that the EU were going to forward a legislative proposal this year to implement mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence legislation. So there's a draft that's come out on that directive. There is um, a lot of discussion about it. There's been an uptake by a consortium of businesses and investors buying into that concept. And I think that's really interesting because there's this shift now from seeing that voluntary measures and voluntary frameworks just haven't been enough to really tackle the issues and that we need something more. So this EU legislation is is, as we say, being consulted on. Consultation ended on the 8th of February, so we'd likely to see something in the summer around that legislation. And to answer the second part of your question, you know, what does this mean for business? You know, for for a lot of businesses, some of this will mean just really, I think, um, drawing together perhaps what they're already doing, refining it, ensuring their procedures are, are stronger and strengthened, Um, that they can underpin whatever policy statements they are making around this. But I think that for a lot of businesses, this is, especially if we're going to see enforcement penalties being attached to this legislation, and, and there is discussion of that, and certainly the new draft German Act has got um, enforcement penalties built into that draft. 
I think that for businesses that have never got their head around what they are doing in relation to managing their human rights impacts or ensuring that they're eliminating forced labor, this is going to be tricky. And I think that it's a complex issue. It's not a um, brain science. It's not something that isn't impossible to understand, but it's certainly something that requires effort. It requires resources. It requires leadership commitment. It requires uh, operational changes. Absolutely across the board, shift perhaps in the way an organization has originally worked to ensure that it is going to be able to address the requirements of these particular laws. Wow, Colleen, uh, thank you so much for that extensive history from the voluntary disclosures that you've tracked to uh, the place we are now where, you know, we're talking about legal obligations um, and also how you, we're at a level now where the legislation really requires brands to know and to understand their supply chain. Um, I also love how you highlighted, you know, moving from reporting to actual impact, like how effective are these actions in mitigating these supply chain risks? So actually, yeah, I'm further interested in like digging digging deeper into more practical ways brands can really address these requirements. Um, yeah, I mean, I know you've already mentioned a few, but um, where should they start? Yeah, and, and actually, thank you, Ceci. I think that's, you know, it's a good question and, and probably a question that a lot of listeners today hopefully also think, well, where do I start? So I think for me, one of the really critical things I've seen in advising and working in this area for about 10 years, and, and you know, we've worked with a variety of organizations, small organizations to big brands, and, um, you know, from an operational level to a um, strategic level. And I really think that for me, one of the critical things that always stands out is what is an organization's commitment to this? What is the leadership? What is the culture of an organization? Is it valuable to them to want to address these things? And if that is the answer, or the answer to that is yes, then what is the resources that are going to be put in place? And so I do think for lots of organizations, that's a starting point. Who at your board level is championing this? Who is really interested in how this is addressed and, and what happens. Well, I think that's one of the first things to get right is that cultural piece, that leadership piece. And then, I, and then there are lots of practical steps. The next element I'd say is, you know, to have a policy commitment, to be able to embrace that commitment in a policy and, and make that available to the public. Once a policy is there, there needs to be processes that underpin that. So it, this, again, is not rocket science, but actually for lots of organizations, it's really understanding what processes they already have, what processes are there that can be utilized and built on, not starting from scratch. That's a waste of everybody's time totally starting from what a, a, a business already has in place. So I'd say a gap analysis around the policies and processes with someone who can help navigate that, provide a critical eye, provide some insights as to what's missing is necessary. So I, I think that's another stepping stone. I think um, additional pointers I would make is training. It's really critical across the board to provide training at, at different levels. So understanding who needs training at what level. Um, I then think putting in the right governance systems. So where are the accountability? Where is the responsibility? How does that also flow into people's day-to-day -day responsibilities? You know, what are the incentives? What are the KPIs you're going to build into that? So, you know, th those kind of 
top level requirements. Um, maybe just one or two other tips. I think businesses also need to think about their company structures and how parents and subsidiary companies, the interplay between them, the inter-responsibilities, the duties of care, the, the kind of legal issues as well as the practical issues around their brands, how they manage that. And, and then also really thinking about how this becomes cross-functional so for it to be effective. What is needed for this to be cross-functional in a business? Who, who can run with that? Who needs to be on that team? How do you manage that, the flow of data and information coming in and then again going out so that it becomes practical? Maybe the, I'll stop there just as, as, as a few tips, Ceci. <laughs> sure. You've really broken it down for us um, from company culture, processes, governance culture. It may seem like a lot, but as Nora said, a previous guest on this podcast, just start. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that when you talk about just starting, I think another element to bring in, which is so critical, is that um, really understanding that this is often a marathon. It's not a sprint. And lots of organizations think they have to sprint to the end line to get there. And that I just, from my own experience, that isn't always effective. Sometimes you have to sprint. Sometimes there are legal reasons. Sometimes there are financial reasons why you have to sprint. But accepting that this is a journey and mapping it out, you know, we work really hard with organizations at the outset to map that, what they need to do so that they have a roadmap. And, and that makes everyone comfortable because when people get nervous or fearful or something crops up or something goes wrong in the media, if you've got something to look back on as part of your processes and your mapping, it makes it more manageable. It makes managing the risk a little bit easier. Um, and it also mitigates your risk, you know, so there's good, there's good legal reasons to do these kind of things in this way as well. It's, it's about, you know, mitigating your liability as much as anything else. Given all that you're saying, Colleen, are you hopeful um, that we could start addressing forced labor in some sectors and supply chains? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I've always feel a bit of a dichotomy with that kind of a question, because, because on one hand, we are still faced with exploitation at levels that we've never seen before. And COVID has had such a big impact on that. And, you know, I think for us to turn a blind eye on potentially what is, or not potentially on exactly what has happened in lots of supply chains would just be wrong. So there is that huge difficulty that we, we have in relation to this. But I think if we are not hopeful, then why would we even start addressing it? And I, and, and I learned something in COVID, which was amazing, was that um, a psychologist shared this, is that we all have a circuit in, in our brain. It's a hope circuit. And actually, it breaks despair. And you can grow your hope circuit. I never knew that. You can actually grow it. So, you know, with that in mind, we need to have a, a growth hope circuit around this. So we need to, you know, champion the changes that are made that are positive. We need to really embrace them, I think. And then we need to work out, you know, where are the collaborations that will make an impact, you know, and, and as you know, this is one of the very exciting things of working with um, and wider is that, you know, Audi and wider are looking at this as, you know, what can we do collaboratively to try and create impact and change uh, around exploitation? So I am hopeful and I, and I think that we need to be hopeful because otherwise we would all just despair, you know, and, and hopefully, we, we, hopefully we will see more changes coming to the fore. 
that's so profound. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so one last question then. If you had one wish relating to forced labor in 2021, what would that be? For 2021, you know what I would wish? I wish that, I wish that actually we would have a mindset change. I think I would wish that across organizations and perhaps for people too, that we would really think about what does fair fairness look like in the workplace? What does decent work look like? How does that impact us all individually and then collectively? And I think, you know, that is my, my real hope is, is a mindset change because that builds into that hope framework. So if you think about things differently, you act differently, you will make changes of how that might make a difference to someone else or within a business. Yeah, that's fascinating, actually. It reminds me of one of our company philosophies as Unwider, which is to always focus on looking for an opportunity, uh, particularly an impact opportunity when it comes to supply chain monitoring. Um, as much as there are very real risks to mitigate, uh, we all know that, right? Uh, risk language actually does very little to build the capacity to deal with the risk. So like you're saying, you know, when you're looking at the opportunities, there there is an inherent call to action, right? Which drives you to a place where you actually start looking at how to act, right? So you're not immobilized. Um, it really is a paradigm shift, which kind of throws open a whole new world of possibility. So thank you so much for that, Colleen. Um, what a great way to end. Um, any last words from your side? No, I, I just think thank you for your time today. I mean, you know, I could honestly spend hours telling you and talking to you about all the different challenges and the, the kind of things we're seeing. Um, you know, it's a wonderful space to be in. For years I've been watching how organizations are having to tackle these things, how people are grappling with the law, people are grappling with, you know, what is needed in, in terms of governments and institutions to make this work. So I guess, I mean, the only last point I'd say is that, you know, this really is also something that is, it has to be collective. It's not just for business to change this. It's governments have to really also play their part in this. And so I guess as a, as a, as a sort of passing shot, what we want to see is is really, you know, much more cohesion around this, much more collaboration, much, and, and then for the change to kind of then, you know, gain momentum so that we, we really see the impact. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Colleen, really for your perseverance, actually, in supporting companies to do better uh, on addressing forced labour. Uh, please, please keep at it. <laughs> That's so encouraging. I love that. Thank you, Ceci. I will. That's it from us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms to keep up to date with all things and wider and look out for our next installment. Goodbye.